Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm very excited today to have with me Dr. Scott Stevens. Dr. Stevens is an intensivist. He's pulmonary critical care trained. He works with me in the cardiac SICU, and he also works in the MICU. He's a fantastic colleague, and we're going to do something that I'm very excited about. This is going to be the first in what will be a series of episodes on some basic critical care topics that I think will really be good for anyone with any interest in critical care, whether we are uh, doing it for med students who are doing a critical care rotation or early trainees, whether medicine or anesthesia, who are in the ICU. So, Scott, thanks so much for coming on the program. No, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. So we're going to briefly discuss... um, the uh, historical development of mechanical ventilation. We'll segue into some modern modes of mechanical ventilation, and we'll discuss the use of mechanical ventilation in common clinical scenarios, uh, such as how you would initially set uh, ventilator settings for someone you've just intubated, and what you might do differently if the etiology of the respiratory failure were hypoxemic versus hypercarbic. And then we'll also talk about post-operative weaning when you're ready to try to get someone off the ventilator. So let's get started. Scott, why don't you give us some historical context? Uh, Tell me about the initial development of mechanical ventilation. Sure. And I think this is a really good way to approach the topic so that you understand how things developed and then how how we've gotten to where we are. So invasive positive pressure mechanical ventilation in which the lungs are inflated using gas delivered through an endotracheal tube was really first used in the operating room. Everyone's aware of the negative pressure ventilators used during the polio epidemic, and those don't require endotracheal intubation. Um, Endotracheal intubation and positive pressure ventilation, as I said, got started in the operating room. And then as that began to be used in non-operative patients in the 1950s, the first ICUs were developed, including the first one, which reputedly was at um, Johns Hopkins Bayview. Awesome. And so... When uh, these ventilators were first developed, how did positive pressure ventilators work? So these were really primitive machines. They didn't have any ability to synchronize with the patient effort at all. Um, essentially, it just you set a rate and you set a, a tidal volume, and it the machine did this come hell or high water. Um, and that original mode, the most basic mode, was referred to as controlled mechanical ventilation. Um, the patient had no control whatsoever of the respiratory pattern. The machine controlled everything, hence the name. And this, though acceptable in a fully anesthetized or paralyzed patient, it's really uncomfortable for an unconscious patient, or I'm sorry, for a conscious patient who is able to actually perceive what is happening to them. Fortunately, ventilator technology has advanced since then, and so there are more options that are probably more uh, acceptable to a wider range of patients. Great, yeah. So, you know, I think when I think of why this is uncomfortable, we don't breathe on a set uh, pattern. We don't breathe at the exact same interval, right? And so when a machine just decides that I'm giving you a breath, whether you're ready or not, whether you were going to take one or not, if you're awake, 
that's uncomfortable. So, uh, so that's, I think, what's kind of behind that. Now, let's talk about some of the most commonly used modern modes of mechanical ventilation. Um, do you have a way you like to group these in your head? I do. I like to group these into whether they are a controlled mode, meaning the ventilator is doing most of the work, not only most of the work, but most of the setting of the pattern, versus a spontaneous mode in which the patient is setting a pattern for themselves. In controlled modes of mechanical ventilation, the machine controls most of the characteristics of the breath. Uh, the patient may be able to trigger the breath or initiate the breath, but the ventilator typically gives either a prescribed tidal volume or a prescribed pressure at a prescribed rate. Um, uh, whereas in a spontaneous mode, the machine is entirely dependent upon the patient to set their own respiratory pattern, and the machine just provides support from breath to breath. Great. So let's start with the mandatory modes. Uh, tell me about these. Yeah. So there are several controlled or mandatory modes, and uh, I think, again, it's helpful to consider these in the context of how they were developed. As I mentioned before, the most basic mode, controlled mechanical ventilation, puts the patient completely, completely at the mercy of the mechanical ventilator. A modest refinement to this was the development of intermittent mandatory ventilation, or IMV, in which a patient delivers breath according to a set respiratory rate and tidal volume, and while the patient has no control over the mandatory breaths, the patient is able to breathe through the mandatory breaths thanks to a series of valves within the ventilator circuit. Now, these are totally unsupported, and there's actually a lot of effort to breathing because you've got to actuate the valves, and then there's the resistance of the ventilator circuit itself. So it's actually pretty hard to breathe through the circuit, but at least the patient can breathe a little bit above what the ventilator sets them. And so just to be clear, when you say you can breathe in between the breaths, what that means is that in between breath seven and eight, if you as the patient want to take another breath, you can, whereas in the prior setting, in the prior mode of, of just controlled mandatory ventilation, you could not. That's right. In CMV or controlled mechanical ventilation, there were no valves in the circuit, so there was only airflow allowed when the machine was delivering a breath. In IMV, there are, actually are valves in the circuit that will open if the patient can breathe and suck hard enough, if you will, um, but it's very much like breathing through a straw. Uh, a lot of resistance and a lot of work to open those valves. So still a very uncomfortable mode. Great. Okay. So that's not ideal. So we obviously wanted to keep working. Where'd we go in terms of developing even newer, better modes? Right. So the next refinement was the ability for the machine to actually detect patient effort and synchronize up the breath to the patient's respiratory effort. And the mode that was first developed to do this was synchronized intermittent mandatory ventilation, or SIMV. Now, even though this, this, uh, was, this mode was developed 20-something years ago, it is still a very modern and commonly used mode. In SIMV, the machine is programmed to look for patient effort during a set window. And if it detects that breath effort within that window, it will go ahead and give a fully supported breath. The machine detects the effort either by detecting a drop in pressure in the circuit or detecting an increase in flow through the circuit. And really, they're the same thing. They're just looking at opposite sides of the coin. Um, and when the patient delivers the breath, uh, when the patient detects an effort, it will then deliver a breath as long as it's within that window. If the patient goes through the entire window of opportunity and doesn't make an effort, at the end of that window, the patient will deliver, a, I'm sorry, the ventilator will deliver the breath anyway. Okay, great. So in other words, the machine might say, all right, you've programmed me so that I'm going to look, I'm going to wait three seconds. And if the patient takes a breath, then if I, if I sense that the patient is starting a breath, because either as they pull in that negative pressure that I sense tells me, oh, time to give a breath, or as they pull in, there's some flow from them pulling. And that tells me, oh, time to give a breath, I will give it. If I, if after the whole three seconds, they haven't done that, I'm giving a breath anyway. That's right. That's exactly right. So if you think about a patient, who, uh, if you a respiratory rate set at 10, there's going to be a six-second window for each breath. If the machine detects it, it will give a breath. If it doesn't detect it, it will wait till the end of that window, then give a breath anyway. 
Great. Now, in my experience, uh, SIMV is probably the most commonly used mode here at Johns Hopkins in the surgical ICUs. Do you agree with that? That's right. For whatever reason, um, and I think this is very institution-dependent, but in the sur- it is the most commonly used mode in the surgical ICUs here. Great. All right. So SIMV lets us give a set number of fully supported breaths that are a- the machine will attempt to sync up with patient effort if the patient is making effort. But it also allows the patient to breathe above the set number of breaths, just like we talked about with the IMV, because there are valves that allow them to do it. Um, but we said in IMV, you know, that wasn't that comfortable. So is there a way to give some help for these extra breaths? Yeah, so the modern SIMV ventilators um, will essentially give you both a minimum respiratory rate, but also a maximum totally supported respiratory rate. So if the, re- if the ventilator is set at 10 breaths a minute, you're only going to get full 10 full tidal volume breaths per minute. But if you're breathing 20 times per minute, you'll get those 10 full tidal volume breaths, but then in those additional 10 breaths, you can actually prescribe a level of pressure support to help offset the work of breathing. So the ventilator will raise the pressure in the circuit to whatever the pressure support setting is for those extra 10 breaths. Great. All right. Now, we said that in the surgical ICUs, because of convention or whatever it may be, SIMV, at least here at Johns Hopkins, SIMV is the most commonly used mode. Uh, Now, you also work in the medical ICU. What's the most commonly used mode there? Right. So in the medical ICUs, um, either the MICU or the CCU, the most common mode, controlled mode is assist control or AC. These can be either, this can be a volume or pressure cycled mode, but volume cycled mode, at least at this institution, is the most common that you will see. All right, so let's start with talking about volume-cycled AC, which I believe is also referred to as ACVC or volume control, even though ACVC stands for assist control volume cycled, but often people call it volume control. So tell me about that mode. Right. So the important thing to realize is that the patient who is not spontaneously breathing, assist control is identical to SIMV. The two modes are indistinguishable. The change is, in when, the change is when patients are spontaneously breathing. The difference between assist control and SIMV is apparent when the patient is breathing faster than the prescribed respiratory rate. Whereas in SIMV, you will only get, if you have a respiratory rate set at 10, but you're breathing 20 times a minute, you only get 10 fully supported tidal volume breaths. In assist control, if your respiratory rate is set at 10, but you're breathing 20 times a minute, you get 20 fully supported tidal volume breaths. Because respiratory effort is fully supported in this way, meaning that every breath gets a full tidal volume, there is some thought that maybe assist control is more restful for the respiratory muscles than SIMV. And this may be the reason that we use it more in medical patients, though I think that just is a, a kind of a, that distinction between medical ICUs and surgical ICUs is more of an artificial and comfort thing than really a practical thing. Absolutely. Now, is there, what do people mean when they say the patient is double triggering? Right. So a double triggered, because the patient, because the, on assist control, you are not maxed out at a, to, at a, maximum number of fully supported breaths. If in the midst of a breath, the patient is still working hard to breathe and is still able to drop the pressure in the ventilator circuit below the trigger threshold, it will actually deliver another breath right on top of the last one. So in that way, it is possible to even to double or even triple trigger a, me- a mechanical ventilator in a cis control mode. This means, of course, that you get double or triple the intended tidal volume, which is something we actually worry quite a bit about in patients who we are interested in controlling their tidal volumes. Absolutely. And so this is why for patients who we really feel like we need to, to control the tidal volume, someone with severe ARDS, we often will sedate them to the point where they're not even involved in the, in the uh, breath. That's right. Okay. So now that's ACVC, that's volume control. Uh, but we said there also is pressure cycled assist control, also known as pressure control. So how does that differ from what we just described? Right. So whereas 
on a volume cycled mode, you prescribe a tidal volume, and the machine gives that tidal volume, and you accept whatever resp- whatever respiratory system pressures you get. Pressure control is the opposite. You give a tidal volume, and I'm sorry, you, you set an inspiratory pressure, and you get whatever tidal volume uh, you get based on respiratory system compliance and airway resistance. It's a little more complex to use a pressure control setting than a volume control setting because not only is there the actual pressure component, which will vary in what tidal volume you get based on the compliance of the lung, but there's a resistance component too. And so um, uh, if if proximal airway resistance is very high, you've got a mucus plug or you've got bronchospasm or an obstructed endotracheal tube, you will hit your pressure threshold much earlier, and that pressure wave may not be propagated all the way down to the alveoli. There's also a time component obviously, that you need to give that pressure wave time to propagate. So pressure control can be a little trickier than volume control, um, but it's essentially just another way of thinking about how to inflate the lung. You either give a volume and get a pressure or give a pressure and get a volume. Great. Okay, so with volume cycled, we know exactly how much volume we'll get both each breath and a minimum minute ventilation because we're setting a number of breaths and a set amount of volume, so we know that. But with pressure cycle, we don't. It's it, We don't know how much volume we're going to get. It depends on the compliance and the resistance. That's absolutely right. All right. So it seems like volume control is sort of more reliable. So is there any advantage to pressure control? In some patients, it might be more comfortable because uh, they are able to functionally set their own tidal volume rather than be at the mercy of the machine delivering them a tidal volume. There are some patient populations which we will preferentially use pressure control. These are really limited to uh, postoperative lung transplant patients then many people will use them in a patient on extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And for whatever reason, some patients with interstitial lung disease are easier to ventilate on pressure control than on volume control. Yeah, interesting. And I will say the other thing is that in uh, the pediatric operating room, uh, we often use pressure control because we really want to uh, limit the pressure on those little lungs. Um, and one thing you do guarantee is you won't go above the set pressure. That's right. And that, that's actually absolutely right. In, in fact, in the PICU, um, pressure control is the, by far the preferred mode. Okay, great. All right, so now we've, we've touched on the pressure control, but we said that's much less commonly used, at least here in our adult ICUs. So let's, um, let's focus back on the volume mode. So we talked about volume-cycled SIMV, and we talked about volume-cycled AC. So when we're using those modes, what settings do we actually set on the ventilator? Right, so there are really only four primary ventilator settings. There are lots of others that are you know, kind of ventilator 201 or 301, but for the purposes of most people, there are really only four ventilator settings you need to worry about. Tidal volume, respiratory rate, fraction of inspired oxygen, or FiO2, and positive end expiratory pressure, or PEEP. In SIMV, in addition to those four, you can also set a pressure support for any breaths above the set respiratory rate. This isn't necessary in assist control. So in assist control, there are really only four cardinal ventilator settings. Great. Okay. So let's move on now. We talked about the mandatory modes. Let's talk about the spontaneous modes. So what's the most commonly used spontaneous mode? Far and away, most commonly used spontaneous mode is pressure support. So in pressure support ventilation, the provider prescribes an inspiratory pressure, a PEEP, and an FiO2, and the patient is then able to determine their entire respiratory pattern. They can set their respiratory rate. They can they have a certain degree of control of the tidal volume, how long their breath takes, all these things, and the machine only provides support in the form of pressure for each breath. The machine detects breaths as previously described, that is, in, if the pressure in the circuit drops or if flow in the circuit increases, and then it elevates the pressure to whatever you set the pressure support to. Great. Okay. So what are the advantages to pressure support? Primarily, it's comfort. 
Because the patient is able to determine their own respiratory pattern, pressure support is typically much more comfortable for patients. And then you can titrate how much pressure support you give to achieve a desired tidal volume or minute ventilation. The amount that you actually need will depend on how compliant the respiratory system is, how strong the respiratory muscles are, and how much airway resistance there is. Okay, great. So now you hear all the time people will say, oh, they're on pressure support 5 over 5. So what does that actually mean? So this is this can be a point of confusion, mostly because the nomenclature is a lot different between invasive mechanical ventilation and non-invasive mechanical ventilation. In invasive mechanical ventilation, 5 over 5 means that one has set an inspiratory pressure of 5 centimeters of water and a peep of 5 centimeters of water. But the actual total pressure in the ventilator circuit during inspiration is 10 centimeters of water, meaning that inspiratory pressure of 5 is a delta value, the pressure above the PEEP. Thus, if the inspiratory pressure was set at 10 and the PEEP was 5, the actual inspiratory pressure is 15. All right, so 10 over 5, you have a total inspiratory pressure of 15. 5 over 5, total inspiratory pressure of 10. Correct. All right, so that's the main, most common mode, pressure support. Are there other spontaneous modes? There are. Um, there are modes like volume support, which is probably the second most common one, but these are more complicated and I think probably best left for a talk on more advanced modes of mechanical ventilation. Great. All right, so let's talk about some basic clinical scenarios that people will see. Uh, let's say you've just intubated a patient in the ICU. How will you decide on basic starting ventilator settings? Right, and I think this is the question that invokes the most terror in uh, early trainees. The patient just gets intubated, and the RT looks at the resident or the intern and says, what do you want the ventilator set at? And their eyes go blank. But it really actually isn't that tough. Um, most of the time, the, the settings, they will depend on what the patient was intubated for. If they're intubated for airway protection or hypoxemia or hypercarbia, but even within that, for the most part, you can get away with a, a very basic repertoire. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, in other words, uh, somebody who's intubated for a severe asthma attack, you know, you're going to keep certain things in mind. And we're not going to go through all those specifics um, of, of what you would do for each of those patients. But as you said, in general, most of the time you can start with uh, kind of a rule of thumb. And let's talk about that. So for this basic intro, what would your, what would your initial settings be? Right. So with an adult patient who is on a volume-controlled mode of mechanical ventilation, could be assist control, could be SIMV, a volume-targeted mode, a tidal volume of 400 milliliters for a small woman or 500 milliliters for a larger woman or a man, that's real, that you're not going to hurt anyone with those settings, at least in the short term. Um, if you set, then set the respiratory rate any between, anywhere between 10 to 16, a PEEP of 5, FiO2 of around 60%, in the vast majority of patients, that's going to be fine. Many people immediately after intubating the patient will put the FiO2 on 100%, then wean it down based on oxygen saturation. But most patients don't need 100% immediately after intubation. And you probably can get some feel for how much oxygen they were requiring before intubation to, to figure out what they'll need uh, that, after. That's right. If someone's profoundly hypoxemic beforehand, they've got a bad pneumonia or developing ARDS, then, yeah, it might make sense to start them on 100% and work them down. If they just got intubated because they're having an asthma exacerbation or COPD exacerbation or because they can't protect their airway, you probably don't need that much. Great. All right. So now we've said, you know, we're around 500 cc uh, tidal volume. We've got a respiratory rate of 12, a PEEP of 5, and 60% oxygen. Now, how do we know if that was right for this patient or not? So the oxygenation is actually probably the easiest thing to know right off the bat because you can follow pulse oximetry and see whether your oxygen saturations are acceptable. And really, anything above 92% is totally fine. Um, and if you're not at that target, you can go up on the FiO2 if you're, if you're less than 100%. Assessing the adequacy of ventilation of, of CO2 removal is a little tougher, and that generally mandates an arterial blood gas at somewhere between 20 and 30 minutes after you intubate the patient. It takes about 20 to 30 minutes for CO2 to equilibrate once you change minute ventilation. 
Great. Now, some people out there may be saying, well, what if you have end tidal CO2? Now, we don't routinely have it on every patient, at least in our surgical ICUs. How about in the MICU? Do you guys have it on We every? actually almost never have it uh, okay. in the MICU. And the reason is that in the, most of the patients that we have with severe lung disease, you have so much VQ mismatch that end tidal CO2 becomes very unreliable as a marker of arterial carbon dioxide. Great. So we always teach our residents in the operating room that if you look at the end tidal CO2, the PCO2, and this is, of course, in a patient with relatively healthy lungs, is going to be about 5 to 7 millimeters of mercury above the end tidal. Now, the end tidal CO2 is going to be lower because of dead space ventilation mixing with that end t- with that CO2 from the alveoli. But as you mentioned, especially if you haven't yet seen a blood gas, you don't really know what the difference in a given patient is, especially if they have lung disease, you're going to have potentially a, a, a dynamic difference and a, a large difference. And so you really need a blood gas in order to know what's going on with the CO2. That's right. And we have increasingly, at least in the MICU, used venous blood gases um, to gauge the adequacy of ventilation. And that really is about the only thing that a venous blood gas is useful for. Um, you can't you can't make any assumptions about someone's oxygenation from a venous blood gas, mm-hmm. nor can you make any assumptions about their pH from a venous blood gas. But PCO2 is roughly consistent, about 7 millimeters of mercury higher in a venous blood gas than in an arterial blood gas. So you will see people use venous blood gases for those purposes. Great. All right. So now you get your ABG. How are you going to make adjustments uh, to your ventilator settings based on what you see on that either ABG or VBG? Right. So if the PCO2 is high, you need to increase the, and the patient is acidemic as a result of that, you need to increase their minute ventilation. Generally, because as a pulmonologist, I worry a lot about stretching people's lungs too much or giving too much inspiratory pressure. I will do that by adjusting the respiratory rate, increasing the respiratory rate, rather than increasing tidal volume. In contrast, if the PCO2 is low and the patient is alkalemic, then you decrease the respiratory rate to decrease the minute ventilation. If for some reason the PO2 is low, despite an adequate saturation reading, seeing the pulse oximeter is not accurate, you can turn up the FiO2 and and Uh, Conversely, if the PO2 is high, more than about 100 or so, you can turn down the FiO2. Yeah, so tell me about that. So why would you ever turn down the FiO2? Some people out there might be thinking, uh, isn't more oxygen better? Yeah, so this is actually a a very good question. We've known for a long time, actually, that oxygen can be injurious um, to the lungs, that you actually get hyperoxic lung injury. In fact, if you put a mouse in 100% oxygen, it'll live for about three to five days, depending on the the strain of the mouse. And same thing with people. You give them too much oxygen, you will actually cause lung, lung injury. Um, so increasingly, we are targeting normoxia um, when we adjust mechanical ventilation settings rather than hyperoxia. So if your PO2 is anywhere above about 90 to 100, you probably have room to come down on your FiO2 rather than uh, keep your FiO2 high and keep your, uh, your PO2 at super normal uh, ranges. Yeah, I totally agree. And it makes a lot of sense if you think about this evolutionarily. Human beings, uh, it was not possible to be hyperoxic until very recently in human history. We don't have any protections against those free radicals uh, that, that occur when we breathe hyperoxic mixtures. Uh, whereas all it took to be hypoxic any time in human history was you had to just climb a mountain. So it was something we developed a lot of uh, protections against, and we have no protections against hyperoxia. So I make it a point as well to really turn down that oxygen if it's at all, uh, if people are at all hyperoxic. So let's talk about uh, specific considerations. Let's say you're, you've intubated someone who has hypoxemic respiratory failure. What are you thinking, uh, and how do you differ with your initial settings here? Right. So in the patient who has hypoxemic respiratory failure, the first question that I'm asking myself is whether or not I think this person either has developing acute respiratory distress syndrome or they are at risk to develop acute respiratory distress syndrome. They've got a bad pneumonia or they're very septic or whatever. 
And in those patients, I pay a lot of attention to tidal volume. So that is probably the first thing that I will think about if, if someone is hypoxemic is really making sure their tidal volume is on the lower end of what I would like them to be, somewhere around six milliliters per kilogram of predicted body weight, not of actual body weight because Americans tend to go higher than they're predicted, um, but predicted body weight. And the two determinants of predicted body weight are height and gender, and that's it. Yeah, and this is, uh, if you just Google predicted body weight, one of the first things that comes up is the uh, chart where all you have to do is look at the gender and the height, and you follow it over, and it'll tell you what six, seven, eight cc's per kilo of predicted body weight. That's right, and it's almost always lower than you think it is. Um, And so for someone who is severely hypoxemic who I've just intubated, most men, I'll aim somewhere around 400 to 450 cc's, and most women, 350 to 400 cc's until I know what, until I can actually calculate what their predicted volumes are. The other thing to take into account is whether or not increasing FiO2 alone is going to be sufficient to to, um, correct their hypoxemia. In patients who have either a lot of atelectasis or a lot of lung consolidation, um, then we like to use positive end expiratory pressure, or PEEP, to help re-recruit those collapsed or atelectatic or consolidated areas of lungs. And uh, by re-recruiting those lungs, we decrease pulmonary shunt and can actually markedly improve hypoxemia. The caveat to that is that PEEP works best if the disease is evenly distributed. If you just have one lung that is consolidated or one lobe that is consolidated, PEEP's probably not going to work because it's going to go everywhere but where you want it to go. In contrast, if someone has bilateral or very diffuse infiltrates, PEEP is more likely to be effective. Absolutely. So when you're thinking about uh, adjusting, let's say you've intubated someone, they're still hypoxic, uh, and you're not yet on 100% oxygen, what do you do first? PEEP, FiO2, and how do you decide? It depends a little bit on what their x-ray looks like. If they've got symmetric infiltrates or bilateral infiltrates, I will tend to go up on the PEEP before I go up on the FiO2. Uh, In contrast, if if it's a unilateral infiltrate or a one, only a low bar infiltrate, which actually can, prov- can produce relatively profound hypoxemia, then you're probably going to get more bang for your buck going up on the FiO2 than on the PEEP. Great. Now, is there a, an amount of PEEP you consider too high that you wouldn't go above? No. Um, well, yes and no. I think that I tend to be more aggressive with PEEP than uh, a lot of people, but anywhere I don't get too nervous until I'm above 18 to 20 of PEEP. Then okay. I start thinking that I may need to do something else. But... Um, uh, you know, 10 is not that much peep, 12, not that much peep, 14, you're starting to get there, 16, mm-hmm. you're closer. So, you know, I don't, I don't worry too much about going up to about, to a peep of 18. Great. And one thing we should say is that you do need to keep your eye on the blood pressure, uh, because as you get into higher levels of peep, you're going to be impeding venous return. And so some people tolerate that better than others hemodynamically. That's absolutely right. You got to worry about that. And you also have to know whether they're a peep responder or not. Theoretically, I mean, even if you're, even if you don't get to your target, when you first go up on your peep, you should get a little bit better. If things are getting worse or not getting better at all, when you go up on peep, it may just be that you're overinflating the actual functional areas of lung and you're not delivering that pressure to the areas of the lung that you want it to get to. And so you, if you're going to choose to go up on PEEP, you shouldn't just do it in the face of no response. You should make sure that things are actually getting better as you do it. Right. Now you can actually worsen VQ mismatch uh, in the wrong setting, right, where you um, over-distend lung areas that, have, that are receiving the ventilation so much that they actually can tamponade some of the vessels nearby and cause worse VQ mismatch. That's right. You can create what we would call physiologic dead space by going too much up to going up too much on people. Right. Okay. Great. So now, what about um, somebody who is you know you intubated them for hypoxic respiratory failure? Uh, like you said, maybe they have some asymmetrical atelectasis. What's your practice around recruitment maneuvers? Do you use them? Uh, is that a time when you would use them? So again, recruitment maneuvers tend to work best if the disease is symmetric. Um, 
otherwise, same thing with PEEP. It'll tend to, it'll just go to the preserved compliant areas of lung, not to the collapsed or atelectatic areas of lung. Recruitment maneuvers, I think, have a role. They have a limited role. Um, about 30 to 40% of the time when you do a recruitment maneuver, and a recruitment maneuver, by the way, is defined as increasing. There are, two way, there are multiple ways to do it. The most common way is just to increase PEEP to 30 or 40 centimeters of water for 30 to 40 seconds and then let go back down into a lower setting, then repeat as you need to. 30 to 40% of the time when you do this, you are going to either have a pneumothorax, you're going to cause the person to become hypotensive, or you're going to worsen their gas exchange, they're going to become more hypoxemic. So recruitment maneuvers, they've got a role, but a relatively limited role, I think. Yeah. So this is not something we're going to encourage uh, new interns in the ICU to go doing without some supervision and help? No. In fact, I tell my fellows that if they're going to do a recruitment maneuver, they should probably let me know before they do it. <laughs> okay. Great. Interesting. All right. Um, one thing I do tell uh, people is if you're going to do a recruitment maneuver, it doesn't make a ton of sense to do it and then come right back down to the PEEP you were already at. If you feel like your patient is de-recruiting at the set PEEP, then do the recruitment maneuver and come down to a higher PEEP that, than you were at. That's absolutely right. Okay. Absolutely right. Great. Um, all right. So any other things that you keep in mind when you're dealing with hypoxemic respiratory failure? I think so in the patients who have very severe hypoxemic respiratory failure, I have a very low threshold to either use neuromuscular blockade, um, uh, which does a couple things. One, it eliminates the patient from making their own a respiratory effort, so it becomes much easier to synchronize the ventilator. Second is it, it it homogenizes the distribution of ventilation, so you tend to be less likely to overinflate areas of lung. Um, and it, it, third, it decreases oxygen consumption and CO2 production, so it can actually decrease your ventilatory requirements. So I have a very low threshold to do that, and then a low threshold as well if paralysis doesn't work to put people in prone position. That's easier in the MICU than it is in the surgical ICU when people have had either a sternotomy or a laparotomy. But um, we have learned that prone positioning of patients with severe ARDS does convey a mortality benefit. Absolutely, as does, at least in one major study, the neuromuscular blockade. That's right. At That's least right. with cisatricurium. Um, all right, so let's move on and talk about hypercarbic respiratory failure. What do you keep in mind in that setting? Right, so hypercarbic respiratory failure actually is a lot tougher, I think, to manage than hypoxemic respiratory failure. Um, the, the key is to, to maintain an adequate minute ventilation while also not making the situation worse. So this is actually really easy in someone who's hypercarbic because they have no respiratory drive because they overdosed on narcotics um, or they're just a little sleepy coming out of the operating room. You intubate them, you give them a respiratory, give them tidal volume, wake them to wake up. Easy. It is tougher in the patient with asthma or COPD who is having an obstructive lung disease exacerbation. These patients can be very difficult to ventilate because the bronchospasm both increases inspiratory pressures but also increases the amount of time it takes for the lung to empty. And really, you can't get rid of carbon dioxide unless you get all the gas out of the, out of the lung. And so really, exhalation is the, is the critical component, but it's also where the disease affects things. So in a patient who is hypercarbic because of a COPD, or COPD exacerbation or an asthma exacerbation, you need to make sure that you're giving them enough time to exhale. Now, you can do this either by limiting the tidal volume, so there's less gas to actually exhale, or by decreasing the respiratory rate, so there is more time in between breaths for them to exhale. And this is the concept we refer to as I to E ratio, right? And so people will hear that, and that's the inspiratory time to the expiratory time. And so a one to two is pretty common for you or me or anyone without, uh, without obstructive respiratory disease. Uh, and that means that there's twice as much time for exhalation as inhalation. But often, we have to go much higher on that expiratory ratio uh, when someone has obstructive disease. That's right. And this is one of the advanced settings on ventilators. It's not one of the cardinal settings that we really think about. But you can change the IV ratio on the ventilator 
On some ventilators, you adjust the IDE ratio primarily, meaning you actually program in what you want your IDE ratio to be. In some ventilators, you adjust the flow rate, the inspiratory flow rate, and then that will determine what your IDE ratio is. Most of the ventilators we have at Hopkins, you adjust the inspiratory flow rate, and that gives you an IDE rather than the reverse. Right, and that's uh, true in the ICU. It turns out in the operating room, uh, it's the opposite, where we adjust directly the IDE ratio. So do you... um, when you're when you're worried about that, uh, and you're worried about someone with obstructive disease, you are going to do what? You're going to uh, increase your inspiratory flow rate. Yeah, you will increase your inspiratory flow rate. And the other thing, the other the thing to keep in mind is that even though we tend to think of it being an emergency when someone is hypercarbic and has a low pH, we actually tolerate hypercarbia and a low pH relatively well. Where you get in trouble in a patient with bad asthma or bad COPD is when you try to correct that too quickly, and you end up not giving patients enough time to exhale, not only do they not get rid of CO2, but they actually accumulate gas in their thorax with each breath, a phenomenon called dynamic hyperinflation or intrinsic PEEP. And as they do this, and as pleural pressure builds up because of the increasing volume in the lungs, you actually get to the point where pleural pressure exceeds the return pressure um, to the right atrium, and then you uh, have a cardiac arrest because your cardiac output goes to zero as your return to your RV goes to zero. So in these patients, the things to think about, one, is you don't need to correct them too quickly. You just need to keep their pH somewhere in the 7.2 range, and they'll be fine. And then hitting them with bronchodilators and things that will actually fix the problem while you support them. And a lot of times you just have to kind of grit your teeth and give them 12, 24 hours of a pH of 7.2, 7.25 at a very slow respiratory rate um, while you're bombing them with bronchodilators. Yeah, and in fact, sometimes uh, with severe ARDS patients where we're tolerating hypercarbia so as not to use high tidal volumes, those patients will get even lower. Sometimes they'll be at 7.1, and That's they right. do just fine as well. That's right. Uh, now, the um, while you're treating them, maybe you're giving them bronchodi- uh, you're giving them some inhaled bronchodilators, maybe you're giving them some epinephrine. In the operating room, we have the advantage of using uh, inhaled anesthetics, which are bronchodilatory. Ketamine is bronchodilatory. You have a lot of options to, to treat it. And as you say, you are making sure that they're exhaling. You may hear people out there may have heard of the Lazarus effect uh, or the Lazarus phenomenon where patients who have had this dynamic hyperinflation that you mentioned, Scott, will have a cardiac arrest, will not be resuscitated, and at some point will the code will be called, they'll get disconnected from the ventilator, and then a couple minutes later they'll wake up because they finally exhaled and now can get venous returned to their heart again. That's right. And so the first thing actually that we teach the residents and the fellows that they should do if a patient is having has a COPD exacerbation or an asthma exacerbation or you're just worried that they have some sort of obstructive lung disease and their blood pressure is going down, first thing you should do is actually just disconnect them from the ventilator, disconnect the endotracheal tube from the ventilator circuit. And if it's dynamic hyperinflation that's causing the the drop in blood pressure, it'll get better immediately. And then you have to readjust your settings to make sure it doesn't happen again. Absolutely. So you've got to really pay attention to that with anyone you know has obstructive lung disease or undifferentiated hypercarbic failure where it may be that. That's right. And it can. I have seen it happen in patients after... Um, Uh, pulmonary surgery or after lung transplant where there's a clot or there's a mucus plug in the tube and it it functions as a ball valve. Mm -hmm. Um, So it doesn't need to be someone who has a history of COPD or or, uh, asthma. It just has to be someone who you think that their airway resistance is going to be different than it should be. Great. All right. So with hypercarbic respiratory failure, you need to keep in mind making sure they have the expiratory time that they need to get that air out. You need to be very cognizant of what might be going on if they get hypotensive, and then you can uh, deal with that by giving them more time to exhale, either by directly increasing the expiratory time or, depending on your ventilator, increasing the inspiratory flow rate, decreasing the respiratory rate, and both of those things will give the patient more time to exhale. That's right. 
Perfect. All right. So anything else for hypercarbic respiratory failure? No, I think that I think just emphasizing that you, you should resist the urge to correct things too fast. Right. Absolutely. So in fact, you intubate someone for hypercarbic respiratory failure, that, that PCO2 comes back at 100, and you think, man, let's turn this up to you know 30 breaths a minute to get that off, and that's the mistake. Right. The, the other mistake is not paying attention to the pH. So people who have chronic um, hypercarbic lung disease may have a very normal pH with a markedly elevated PCO2. And you don't really need to correct that PCO2. That's what they live with as long as their pH is normal, you know, 735, 732, um, you're fine. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So now let's say we've, we've done well, our patient is doing well, and we think they're ready to begin uh, weaning. How are we going to start the process of weaning? So there are a lot of different approaches to weaning a patient from mechanical ventilation. None of them are better than another. Um, the most important thing is that you have an approach that you stick to. They do the same thing with each patient. The way that I like to do it is um, every day, if the patient is on a controlled mode of mechanical ventilation, put them on a spontaneous mode, a low level of spontaneous support, five pressure support over five of PEEP, and see how they look. If they look great in 30 minutes and they can follow commands and interact with me, I'll take the tube out. If they don't look good, put them back in their prior settings and wait until tomorrow and try it again. Great. Another approach, and one I often use, which is similar, is uh, let's say some, a patient is on SIMV, I'll turn the respiratory rate down quite a bit to a low base rate of maybe four or five breaths a minute, and then wait and see if they over-breathe. This is, of course, assuming they weren't already over-breathing. And if they do, meaning I now know that they are going to have a respiratory drive, then I will put them on pressure support. Uh, see how they do, uh, just as you said, and if they look great. And things when we say look great, let's talk about that. So what do you, what, what to you do you see in a patient that's now on pressure support of five over five, which we kind of refer to if it's 40% or less FiO2, we refer to that as minimals, meaning minimal support. So now you've got someone there on pressure support of five over five, let's say 30% oxygen. What are you looking for to make you think, yep, they're, they look great, they're ready? Right. So here is where you're probably going to find one of the bigger differences between medical ICUs and surgical ICUs. In the medical ICU, um, we really just focus on how the patient looks uh, qualitatively. We don't really look at quantitative values. Yeah, you want to make sure that their oxygen saturations are okay. Yes, you want to make sure that they don't get hypercarbic um, on, minimal, on minimal ventilator settings. But generally, if the patient looks comfortable, they're not working hard to breathe, they're not hypertensive, they're not sweating, they're not panicking up, sitting upright in bed, they're probably fine. So the guys who I feel very comfortable about are the people who are just kind of sitting there quietly, Usually the legs are crossed. They're, they just look comfortable. And that's a very qualitative assessment rather than a quantitative assessment. Um, I think in the surgical ICUs, there's more attention paid to quantitative assessments like looking at measures of pulmonary function like forced vital capacity, respiratory rate and tidal volume, um, uh, and minimal, uh, maximal inspiratory pressure or minimal inspiratory pressure. But to be tr uh, in truth, these don't really predict any better success of extubating people than just a qualitative look at the patient. Right. In fact, uh, one of our surgical intensivists uh, and great teachers here, uh, Dr. Lipset, uh, often tells the story of a study that was done here many years ago uh, where they looked at all kinds of different um, ways to try to evaluate someone being ready for extubation. They looked at the tidal volume of the respiratory rate and the negative inspiratory force. 
and a variety of other things. And they found, as I'm sure you know, Scott, that the, the thing that best predicted whether someone would be uh, would survive or would continue extubated and not need to be reintubated was what the bedside nurse thought uh, about whether or not the patient would do well off the vent. That's right. The, and it just speaks to the importance of actually looking at the patient That's rather right. than uh, just looking at a computer and looking at the vital signs that are recorded. Right. That said, and I completely agree, we do, as you mentioned, often in the surgical ICUs, we do look at things like the RSBI, the Rapid Shallow Breathing Index, also known as the Tobin Index, which is the respiratory rate divided by the tidal volume in liters. So in other words, if a patient is breathing 20 times a minute, and their average tidal volume is 300 cc's, that would be 20 divided by 0.3. And so if that number, in theory, is less than, and there's some debate, but is less than 105 or maybe less than 85 uh, or 80, then uh, we think they have a, maybe they look a little better. Certainly if that number is down in the 40 or 50 range, I feel pretty good about that. Uh, whether, Whether I should or not is maybe another thing, but, you know, that's something we do look at. And if the number is in the mid 150, 170 range, we probably feel less good about that. Yeah. And I think that if you were to look at the patient at the same time as making those measurements, you'd probably see the guy who's got a Tobin index of 150 looks pretty crummy. That's right. They're breathing rapidly and shallow, and you can tell that from the door. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, Great. All right. Anything else we need to keep in mind when we're – oh, let me ask you about – do you use and what do you think the value in a T-piece trial is? So I think, I think there's a very real role for T-piece. So T-piece trial is when you take the patient and you disconnect them from the ventilator and you put a plastic piece that looks like a T, um, and the, the long end of the T, not the crossbar, but the vertical part of the T gets plugged into the endotracheal tube, then the crossbar gets plugged one, one end just to an oxygen line, and the other end is open to atmospheric pressure. The advantage of the T-piece is that it really is giving the patient no support. They are breathing at atmospheric pressure. There is no assist. You're just giving them oxygen. Um, I think that the advantage to a T-piece is in someone who you are very worried about their inspiratory muscle strength, and you want to make sure that you want to give them as much of an acid test as you can, give them absolutely minimal support, or the patient who you are worried about provoking flash pulmonary edema. So it turns out pulmonary edema, the patient's got heart failure, is volume overloaded, it's, it is exquisitely PEEP sensitive. And this is for both for reasons that are both pulmonary and cardiac, uh, meaning the effect of PEEP on cardiac function. The heart actually really likes PEEP in general. The uh, left heart. The left heart likes PEEP. Yeah. The right heart less, less so, but the left heart loves PEEP. Yes. Um, and so you take them off, you put them on a T-piece. Now you are as close, you are coming as close as you can to mimicking the conditions they're going to be facing if they're breathing completely on their own, but you still have the endotracheal tube in. This, I think, I do this if I'm worried that someone is going to go into pulmonary edema. I'm, I'm 50-50 on whether I'm, I'm going to be able to successfully extubate them. And I don't want to take, go through the risk of taking the tube out and then potentially not being able to get it back in. So someone who I'm worried is going to fail, someone who has a potentially difficult airway who I really want to make sure they're going to look fine, those are the patients that I will do a T-piece trial in. Absolutely. I use it for the same reasons. All right, Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show. Let's do it again soon with another topic. Absolutely. This has been great. Thanks a lot. Thanks. All right. That's it for our topic today. Remember, you can go to the website, ACRAC.com, that's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can download any of the episodes, including this one. You can leave comments there, and I encourage you to do that. If you've listened to this and you have questions about anything having to do with mechanical ventilation, if you do things differently and you're wondering why or you want to share that with the listeners, post the comment there. That way everybody can see it. You can, of course, if you have some specific question for me or comment for me, you can always email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C at A-C-C-R-A-C.com. 
and you can go to iTunes uh, and download any of these episodes as well. And of course, if you're enjoying the podcast, you can leave a rating and a comment there. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC podcast and for Dr. Scott Stevens, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.